This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 146. On today's special episode, we speak about politics with Peter Lilback and Carl Truman. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. I'm very pleased to welcome you to episode number 146. We have a very special episode today. We're going to have an informal debate on the subject of politics. And let me introduce to you today our panel. We welcome to the program our friend Jared Oliphant, who's Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome, Jared. Thanks, Camden. We also have now one, the first of our two very special guests, Dr. Peter Lilback, who is the president of Westminster Theological Seminary. He's also the president of the Providence Forum and the professor of historical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's an honor to have you back, Dr. Lilback. Thanks for joining us. It's an honor to be with you. I'm impressed with what you're doing, so keep up the good work. <laughs> well, we're impressed uh, with your leadership and very thankful for all that you do for Thank Westminster, you. and uh, we're very excited to have you back. This isn't the Glenn Beck program, but uh, we're hey, getting there. Let me tell you, it, it's, it's comparable now. It's the sweep that you have with the country is incredible. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you never know with the guests he keeps having on. He might end up delving into the Reformed world asking for uh, political advice, and maybe he will turn to one Dr. Carl Truman to do so. He's the Vice President for Academic Affairs at Westminster Theological Seminary, as well as bearing the title and the duties of Professor of Historical Theology and Church History. Welcome back, Dr. Truman. It's great to have you. It's great to be back, Camden, and I'm delighted to see that you've improved the deco since I was there. <laughs> Black. <laughs> we have. Thanks to your good friend, Derek Thomas. Yes, and his <laughs> criticism. Yes. <laughs> but it was needed. Well, on that note, we would like to mention our good friend, Andrew Moody, who uh, is the proprietor of a wonderful website titled ReformationArt.com, and we have uh, worked out a little trade with him, and we are mentioning his website, and we want you to go there and visit uh, in exchange uh, for some prints. He has wonderful prints, different artwork available uh, that depicts Reformed events and Reformed theologians throughout the ages. So if you're looking for something for your walls, maybe at your church or in your office, uh, check out ReformationArt.com. They have a wonderful uh, collection of artwork that you can purchase. So visit them online, ReformationArt.com. And, of course, we are broadcasting live at ReformedForum.tv in audio and video tonight. Uh, We are very privileged and excited to do so. So visit us online at ReformedForum.tv slash calendar if you'd like to get a list of all of our upcoming programs and the times at which those will take place. Online at ReformedForum.tv. Oh, as I get started, as we open up this discussion today, I should mention some of the pertinent books. We are going to be focusing mostly tonight on Dr. Truman's book, Republicrat. We had an interview on uh, Reformed Media Review several weeks ago on this new book from Presbyterian and Reformed Publishers, and we are very excited to speak about that. I should also mention that Dr. Truman is the author of Histories and Fallacies, Problems Faced in the Writing of History. Is that forthcoming? That's not even out yet, is it? It's out in November. In November. So that is more of a um, methodology, might you say, a handbook on how to do history? Yes, it's an attempt to... uh, It's it's really pitched, I would say, undergraduate-level history Mm -hmm. students who want some kind of guide through the postmodern morass and how to do history. Wonderful. And also the author of a collection of essays titled Minority Report, which features Paul Tripp on its cover. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some people have identified it as Joseph Stalin. It certainly isn't Stalin. It's Nietzsche. Yeah. Who may have been related to Paul Tripp, I don't know. I thought it was a collection of uh, essays on uh, biblical counseling. (laughs) It's one of those psychology tests. You see what you want to see on that cover. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, uh, joking aside, we uh, we have a wonderful scholar, Dr. Peter Lilback, here uh, who's written several books. Uh, We talked spoke uh, probably about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, about his book, The Bondage of God. Um, 
a wonderful book on covenant federal theology, looking at uh, Calvin and uh, the development of federal theology throughout history, particularly in the Reformation. But he's also written two important books on the subject of today's discussion, the first being uh, George Washington's Sacred Fire, which was featured by Glenn Beck on his Fox News program and shot quickly there uh, to number one on Amazon's bestseller list. Uh, and he has, uh, and that book has been featured not only at that time, but uh, in many different shows after that first appearance. And also the author of Wall of Misconception, Does the Separation of Church and State Mean the Separation of Church and Government? So we have plenty of material to speak about today as we approach the uh, election season. It's just a few weeks away. November 2nd, I believe, in the United States is uh, going to be an important vote. Uh, There have been many changes in the last few years in our landscape of politics. Uh, And uh, there are going to be many seats up for grabs and perhaps a Senate and perhaps a House up for grabs as well. So we'll find uh, out what's going to happen on November 2nd. But before then, we're going to have a discussion today about how Christianity relates to that wonderful world of politics. Now, if anyone's picked up the book Republicrat, they will know that uh, Dr. Lilback, Dr. Truman, of course, work together, have offices next to each other, and uh, have very different views about politics, at least on how to apply Christian principles to the world of politics uh, and what uh, those Christian principles might say. And Dr. Lilback, could you just uh, describe a little bit about the task of writing the wonderful foreword in this book Republicrat? <laughs> Well, I think the Republicrat forward is a classic, just like the book Republicrat <laughs> itself. I think they both belong in history permanently. I've never had so much fun writing anything as writing that because I realized I was going to have to endorse a book where I probably didn't agree with certain parts of it. So the only tool that I had at my disposal was humor. And yeah. so I laughed my way through reading his book. So I said, I'm, <laughs> I, I, had, I had to laugh my way writing the foreword. So, uh, it so it's a lot of fun. But uh, Carl and I decided that we would not fight in front of the camera. We'd only do it afterwards. We thought it would be too hard on Westminster <laughs> to have a, a worldwide fisticuffs appearance. So. <laughs> Probably wise. That's funny. And Dr. Truman, could you just explain a little bit about your working relationship, how you go about uh, dealing with the day-to-day tasks, and you both have been through a difficult theological controversy. Uh, many of our listeners will know at Westminster, uh, for you know, with with Dr. Uh, Peter Enns, and uh, both of you were involved in in uh, navigating the seminary through that controversy. How does uh, working with Dr. Lilback uh, impact, or how how does uh, your differences on politics come into that working relationship, if at all? Um, I'm not sure that it, it has much of an impact at all. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a certain mutual respect that exists between us. And I also think that um, what binds us together is much deeper than that which divides. Peter and I are both very committed to uh, the theology contained in the Westminster Standards. And I think that that is sufficient in and of itself to overcome differences we have in the political realm. Mm-hmm. And I also think that, I, I guess, as I, as I look back on Republicrat, my own politics are less ideological and more totally disillusioned. <laughs> and I think that possibly makes me uh, a, an easier person for Peter to work with than if I was a really ideologically driven person. Well, uh, speaking then, uh, how would you classify yourself? Uh, the book obviously has a very interesting title. Could you maybe explain where you're coming in the title Republicrat and then let the listener know how you would term yourself in terms of your political views? I think the overall thrust of the book would be to try to encourage people not to think in a partisan way. Mm-hmm. That, yes, when you go into the voting booth, you've got to tick one box or the other. And that's a very unnuanced move. But that doesn't mean you have to uncritically sign up to everything one party or the other is saying. So part of the burden of the book was to to provoke the people I mix with in church, uh, ordinary Christian people, into thinking more critically about their political commitments, about where they get their information from, how they assess political matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of the, the burden of the book was that, and that was one of the reasons. There were a number of reasons why I asked Peter to write the foreword. Um, <laughs> But one of the reasons was I wanted the book itself to model the kind of slightly odd and unexpected alliance stroke interactions 
that I would like to see Christians having as they approach this political season. Certainly. On one level, I don't care if the book changes anyone, the way anybody votes in two weeks' time, but I would like it to make it more painful for people to vote one way or the other. <laughs> they, they come to realize that, that, that voting involves a trade-off. It's a civic duty. It's important to do it, but it's always going to involve a trade-off, mm-hmm. and, and that too is part of the burden. Had I written the book in, in Britain, it would have been very different because there, the, certainly up until fairly recently, the traditional alliance between conservative Christianity and politics has been a center or left of center mm. uh, position. I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones as a great example. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones always read The Guardian because it was the one politically liberal mainstream newspaper, politically liberal in the old traditional sense of the word, uh, and Lloyd-Jones, it would never have crossed his mind, I don't think, to have voted for the Conservative Party. Mm. So if I'd written the book in Europe, it would have been, I would have taken a very different tack. And most of my blows would have been aimed at the left, not at the right, as they happen to be in, in the book as it now stands. And that's always a changing landscape. Uh, the words left and right, by definition, uh, and their use, uh, they're always changing from day to day. Uh, how would you? Is there any particular era of history or region in the world where you would feel most at home in terms of the outworking of uh, politics? I think if I was to, if I were to look at British history, and say where would I have fitted most comfortably, I think it would have been with the the liberal administrations of the first two decades of the 20th century, mm. and with the immediate post-war Labour administration the 1945 government of Clement Attlee. So I would look, if you want my political heroes on that level, mm-hmm. it would be Campbell Bannerman, Lloyd George, and Clement Attlee. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Lilbeck, uh, you have spoken in uh, previous lectures at Westminster about your own position of the relationship between uh, God's law and the civil magistrate, and uh, that's a position that you've titled Philonomy. Could you describe that and distinguish it? As some people might hear theonomy. Uh, what, what I was not- hearing that just then, actually. <laughs> <laughs> How would you distinguish that? Can you maybe provide a little etymology of this synthetic word? Well, I felt I needed to coin a new word as I wrestled with the whole question of how God's law and government works together. Uh, one viewpoint is theonomy means that all of the Old Testament laws are to be literally reapplied to a godly culture. And that should be the purpose of conservative Christians who love the Lord and are reformed. And then, of course, there's the uh, abandonment of the law entirely that just says we can do whatever we want because we are free in Christ. The, a radical, evangelical, uh, almost uh, neo, uh, what shall we say, Pentecostalism, that where we say the Holy Spirit has just made us free and we can do what we mm. want. <clears throat> so an antinomianism of some sort. In between those two extremes of a kind of antinomianism and a theonomy is the historic reform position we find in the Westminster Standards, and that position says that the law of God is eternal in relevance. It's uh, designed to show the nature of God to man, whether fallen or unfallen, and therefore it really belongs to the Christian, and that we are taught, oh, how love I thy law, to use the language of the Psalter. And so I was trying to get at the idea, I'm not a theonomist, nor am I antinomian. I am one who loves the law. The word philos mm-hmm. means to love, like Philadelphia, the Greek word phileo. So I coined the word philonomy in Christian ethics, that we should come at the law not, oh, no, we're stuck with this, or, or we've got to literally apply it to everything, but rather how good God is that he's shown us his nature in so many aspects of our life and that we should joyfully embrace it and live it out and if we can, appropriately, through our civic leadership and our work in culture, to bring it to bear upon public matters of believer and unbeliever alike. That's helpful. And, of course, there's many different views on the relationship of uh, God's law to the civil magistrate, many different views on the relationship of the church to the state. You've written a book on the subject, Wall of Misconception. Uh, what would you see as the uh, proper relationship of uh, the church to the state? Uh, Christine O'Donnell just got in trouble today uh, questioning whether uh, the Constitution advocates a separation of church and state, at least in the, in the typical way that it's formulated. Um, how would you uh, present that particular separation? 
Well, I would say that, first of all, it's a shock to some who have never studied this to realize that our Constitution does not use the language separation of church and state. Uh, The jurisprudence of America is based so strongly on that when we come to First Amendment discussions that we assume that it's there. The reality is is that it comes to us through a private letter of Thomas Jefferson that's been read into the uh, discussion of the First Amendment by our Supreme Court. So it's certainly relevant, but it's not its position. But I like to use the imagery of uh, Reagan at the Berlin Wall, where he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of our Supreme Courts said that the wall of separation between church and state should be kept high and impregnable. I want to say, no, it's not the Great Wall of China. It needs to be (laughs) brought down, but not destroyed. Tear it down to the size that our founders meant, which was we don't want to have an established church. Now, if you've ever been to a Presbytery meeting, you know why I'm glad Presbyterians don't run America, right? It would be truly a dangerous thing. It's good that we have diversity in that regard. But the premise that I'm arguing for is that uh, we need to have a separation between an established church and the government. There needs to be safety for atheists who don't believe anything, that they can be citizens. And yet we don't want to have some kind of a barrier from people of faith of entering into government because the vision from the beginning was that the spiritual reality of the world would be beneficial for the civic reality, and that Mm -hmm. church believers enter into the public square as citizens, and they bring value. So a wall that's low enough for government and church to work side by side, but still to be kept separate with different perspectives. That's kind of the ideal that I would say was in mind when our First Amendment was crafted. Mm. Dr. Truman, where would you stand on different issues, and how would you classify yourselves? There have been several different positions throughout history. Uh, the British oftentimes present more of a, at least in, in times past, the re- British Reformed would present themselves more as establish, establishmentarian. Yes. Uh, what do you think about the, the different positions, 2K, establishmentarian, uh, Erastian? Well, coming at it from a, from a British historical perspective, of course, you have uh, the Anglican Church is the established church in England, exactly. yeah. and the Church of Scotland is the established church in Scotland. And the Free Presbyterians and the Free Church of Scotland still hold to the establishment principle, even though they're not the established churches. They'd like to be the established churches, but they, they're not for reasons of, of separation. It's one of the areas where I would certainly regard uh, the First Amendment Establishment Clause as a great thing. I'm not a believer in the establishment principle, and I think British history indicates that both in England and in Scotland, where you have an established church, it actually becomes an agent for secular, secularization of the church mm. in the long run. And I suspect the difference between Peter and myself does not, is not so focused on the issue of establishment. I think both of us would, would repudiate that as, dare I say it, I'm a good American Presbyterian. That's my, on that my next question, because uh, now, being a, an ordained minister of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you do subscribe to an Americanized yeah. version of the standards yeah. that have adjusted much of the uh, language on the relationship of the church to the state. What do you think, uh, in retrospect, uh, maybe even with uh, today's political climate in mind, what do you think of the American project? In what sense? In the sense of uh, making those revisions and uh, attempting to establish an, uh, a democracy, a federal democracy, a collection of states in such a way. The founders, uh, as far as I understand, attempted uh, to present and establish something that was unique in history, uh, taking the best of what they th- what they saw in different other systems, establishing a new government. Do you think, generally speaking, it has worked out? I think so. I, I mean, I'm a big admirer, particularly of the First Amendment of the American Constitution, both on the church issue and the freedom of speech issue, and the consistent way that it that it seems to have played out in American history. So, on that issue, I'm a, I'm a big fan of of the American Constitution. Hmm. But I'm also, you know, I'm an admirer of Tom Paine, so it's not an entirely <laughs> loony thing for me to say that or unexpected. It's uh, funny, but, uh, 
depending on who whom you appeal to in the uh, in the past in the America's history can already start to label you as where you might fall on certain political issues. Uh, Dr. Lilbeck, you've written a, a, a very intensive book on uh, the subject of George Washington and his spirituality. Uh, you would argue his orth- orthodox Christianity or, or close to that. Um, does it matter if the founders of the United States were Christian? And if so, uh, how does that impact our understanding of uh, the American government, at least today? Well, in a certain sense, history matters because history is written by the victors. That's one of the... If you can't tell the story of the past, you've lost the impact on the culture. In fact, it has been said the man who controls the past controls the future. So it's very important that we engage history. But I would say specifically when we talk about the issue of the faith of our founders, it really is an attempt... Uh, to say, where did our nation begin? And from that starting point, then, to determine what is the logical outflowing of those core values. Uh, If, for example, our position is, well, they really were basically semi-atheists or agnostics or overt deists, Mm -hmm. meaning there was a creator, but he has nothing to do with the world. It's just he's the first cause. We need a starting point. And so God was there. And then it makes sense, well, as things have evolved and if people have developed uh, philosophical and political viewpoints, as they've moved more and more toward a secularism and an atheism, it makes total sense. As we have developed, we've moved from a uncertainty about God to just a simple rejection of the need for God to be part of culture. It's just mm-hmm. a logical progression. But if you <clears throat> look at the beginning of the American experiment and you say, no, there were certainly deists there and there were some agnostics, but by and large they were trying to build a theistic understanding of the world, that God really did have a role, that prayer mattered, that providence was significant, that revelation and incarnation might actually have had significance in the way we look at everything, including, uh, let's say, government. Then if the development of the country has been more pluralistic in the sense of broader views, more religious liberty, then it really does matter when we get to the modern world where conservative, evangelical, or Reformed Christians say, I still belong in the public square. We were here at the beginning. Instead of saying, no, you are interlopers. You barged in in a place you don't belong. This is secular business. Get out of here. (laughs) It's a way of saying, well, of course you belong here. Christianity has been gracious enough to let everyone have a place in its culture. But we still belong. We created the public square. So if you don't like what we believe, that's okay. But you've got to deal with us. We're partly here. So to wrap up that, where you begin determines where you end. And so where we started really is important because it helps to uh, decide and discover and define the progress of our democracy. What do you think about the the public uh, square, the state of the public square currently, Dr. Truman, in terms of... uh the use of religion oftentimes to uh, gain political advantage. I'm thinking particularly in the rhetoric in election season, people will speak certain ways in order to cast themselves as religious in order to gain votes. Yeah, it's it's something that's always fascinated me about American politics as opposed to British politics. Even though we have an established church uh, or established churches in the United Kingdom, uh, religion has never played a significant role in party politics in the way it does in the U.S. Uh, it's, it's very strange to say this, but even as a Christian, when Tony Blair talked about praying, I thought I was being played. Mm. Because culturally, in, in, in British political culture, when somebody talks about praying, that's private. We don't, do, we don't talk about that in public. Mm. We don't use that politically. It's like... It's as if the guy that you know is cheating on his wife wheels out his family at election time and presents the image of the family man. Something doesn't quite ring true about it. But in 2004, uh, John Kerry basically had to do that in order to present himself as even a viable candidate. Yeah, and I I remember, um, uh, I I think it was 1996, my wife and I were living in Michigan Mm. at the time for six months, and it was was Bob Dole versus Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton. Uh, runoff in the election there and it fascinated me how Clinton uh, had to present himself appear going to church with a great big bible these kind of things so the difference between British and American culture on that point is quite fascinating 
And that in America, you have this radical separation of church and state or <laughs> non-establishment, however you want to define it. Yeah. But actually, the politics has a much more religious idiom. In Britain, you have an established church, and by and large, religion's a bit of an embarrassment in the, in the political sphere. And mm. I have to say, my, my cultural instincts are much more secular on that one. I'm much more comfortable with guys appearing on the television and arguing economics or social values Mm -hmm. and not necessarily introducing religion. That's not a theological argument. That's a classic British pragmatic empirical argument I'm giving you. Would that be in line with the philosophy of David Hume? (laughs) (laughs) I I think British empiricists and... You remind me of this. Maybe you've just woken up uh, Dr. Lilbeck from his dogmatic slumbers. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I prefer to think of it more of a, in line with somebody like George Orwell, who's one of my heroes, rather than David Hume. Yeah. yeah. Well, Christ the Center can at times be sort of an animal farm. So, yeah, we're in line. In keeping with the international focus right now, I wanted to ask Dr. Lilbeck, um, you've been to so many countries, uh, China, Australia, Indonesia, Korea, just all over the world. Um, what are the conversations like when you go out there and either you speak on political matters, um, I guess more you know, from an international point of view, how does America as a nation relate to that or does it? Um, where does the conversation go with church and state relations when you go to other countries that don't have a background like America? Well, let's say this, that the world recognizes that the American experiment was something novel that has had a huge impact. They... Uh, have recognized, as China is unable to do, that we give diverse religions great freedom. They're struggling with that issue. They know they need to give freedom, and they've identified five religions that they give some measure of freedom to, but it's not a full open freedom like we have in America. And they wonder why we can get away with that. How does it work? They're terrified by it. They say, we're way too big to have this. When I was in Korea, there were actually representatives of the uh, Chinese uh, government that were meeting at some of the seminaries in Korea, and they asked me as an American to be part of that conversation. And again, religious liberty keeps coming up. It's a difficult thing. Uh, when I've traveled in China, I've been asked to lecture at many universities on the issue of how has Christianity impacted the American government and culture. They're very fascinating, and there are a number of scholars who have said to me, We've been studying American history, American culture, and they recognize American success in so many areas, whether we want to use the word American exceptionalism or just the fact that America's led in a number of areas. But they recognize there's something unique, and they keep coming back to the fact that they believe somehow it's the influence of Christianity on our culture that has helped to make that possible. Hmm. And I've sensed a real incongruity. That kind of question I would never be asked in the United States— I've spoken at the Harvards and Yales and Princetons of China. I mean that. The greatest schools I've looked, and they asked me to talk on that. I guarantee you, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton will never ask me to talk on that topic. They will deny that that issue has any relationship. But you go to China, and the scholars will say, it's somehow your worldview and this Christianity that has made you an extraordinary nation. We want to know more about it. Mm. I'm not making that up. That is a fact, and I can say I've spoken on that topic at maybe 30 Chinese universities by request. Wow. People want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about it in America. We're working hard to deny it, suppress it, pretend there never was a Christian consensus, Mm. to use the famous Francis Schaeffer phrase. But there was something in our past that other cultures have recognized and are trying to wrestle with. You, uh, would you agree with, well, I, I should ask you maybe a different question, Dr. Truman. Uh, do you find that the particular influence of religion on the public square in the United States will prevent it from ending up where Europe has ended up? We typically look at Europe uh, and its secularism, and, and they're kind of the bellwether. We, we typically yeah. think in terms of theological or ideological uh, development. Uh, are we going to end up there at some point, or are we headed on a different trajectory? It's very difficult to it's very difficult to predict the future. Really, so <laughs> I make a truism, <laughs> a, a, trum, a Trumanism. <laughs> so here I am about to yeah. predict the future. Uh, I think there are a couple of things that interest me, a couple of areas of potential tension. I think uh, one of them is the. I'm not sure that radical free market economics and Christian morality 
can be held together. I think it was one of, I say this in the book, one of the genius, the, the genius, I think, of Margaret Thatcher, and probably of Ronald Reagan, but I, have, I don't have so much experience of, of America mm-hmm. in the 80s. I think the genius of Margaret Thatcher was she was able to build an electoral base of what I would regard as working-class conservative values from the traditional working class, mm-hmm. plus the young, thrusting, bright entrepreneurs that free market economics and traditional morality were held together for what now looks like a fairly brief period of time, but it provided Margaret Thatcher with much of her power base uh, in the 1980s. I'm not sure, for example, that the Tea Party uh, movement in the United States is going to be as conducive to the religious right as many on the religious right think it is at first glance. Because what I hear from from the Tea Party is is a kind of right-wing libertarian economics, not so much concern with the traditional religious right issues of abortion, etc., etc. It's a small government movement rather than a a conservative morality movement. So that would be be one area where I think that the the right could itself undergo a transformation at this point. And you see that with influential uh, gay groups emerging within the Republican Party, for example. Uh, That happened in, in Europe. Suddenly you have very conservative, right-wing, homosexual mm-hmm. activists uh, who are very much on board with the kind of Austrian-style economics that, that the Conservative Party was proposing, but not so much on board with the, the traditional moral values. moral values. Yeah, in business school, uh, when I was there, I kept getting hammered into my head about the free market and we don't want restrictions and this is the way to go. The market will work itself out. And then uh, studying more theology, eventually coming to Westminster, I, I had come to a deeper understanding of total depravity and also the basic role uh, of, of a civil government. In my view, uh, I think at, at root, the civil government is instituted by God to uh, promote justice and restrain evil. And uh, you mentioned the issue of abortion. And uh, we've already talked uh, free market economics, that there there needs to be perhaps some some role of government in restraining evil there. Um, certainly the issue of abortion is uh, perhaps the, the hottest topic in all of politics, and it tends to boil things down often to a, a single-issue vote in many cases. Uh, Dr. Lilbach, do you think it's appropriate for a Christian to ever become a single or one-issue voter? Obviously there's danger to reduce anything to one single issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard not to see life as a Mount Everest issue because once you begin to compromise life, there are no rights that are sacred thereafter. If you can take a person's life, well, then it's easy to take his purse, to take his property, to take anything else from him. But we can recognize that uh, people do come at these decisions sometimes with other pressing issues, and it's hard to understand a full dynamic why, but if a person is living in chronic poverty, and they're unable to get a job and education, and they personally don't believe in abortion, but they're saying, my concern is, can I get my children educated and fed? And here's Mm -hmm. someone who's helping. I can understand that personal self-interest dominating the altruistic concern about your neighbor. They're saying, I'm not going to have an abortion. That's someone else's issue. I want to get my kids educated. I can humanly understand that. Now, theologically, however, it's hard for me to say, yes, but don't you realize that if you don't protect the life of the unborn, that someday the life of the poor themselves might be on the line where a government might say, we can't afford to have so many poor people, so we're going to force abortion on you, and you will not have any children to worry about education. (laughs) But I can understand those are hard issues because we all live in the realities of our life. So I try not to make the uh, conclusion, well, that person can't be a Christian because they're voting for a party that advocates abortion. Rather, what I would say is, as a Christian, do you realize that that may be an inconsistent position, that you ought to reconsider it? But I'm not going to be God to you and tell you you can't be a Christian. I think that's wrong. That's a non sequitur. I hear people say that all the time. But on the other hand, would I argue for that being a preeminent concern for our political? Well, yes, because everything else flows ultimately from life. Yeah. In the classic words of the Declaration, we hold these values of life, liberty, and yeah. the pursuit of life is first. It's, 
its principle and the, the culture and the, our society has to be founded upon that because if we don't have that, we don't have anything. Dr. Truman, you, you wrote your book, Republicrat and the Spirit of uh, Nonpartisanship. Uh, how does one remain nonpartisan when there is such a stark contrast in parties on this particular issue? Well, I think on one level you, you can't remain nonpartisan. I make the point of the book, when you go into the, into the voting booth, You've got a new box or the other. So ultimately, everybody who votes is partisan. Um, and if abortion is the mountain issue for you, you have to vote in accordance with your conscience. Uh, I sit here, if you like, at this particular moment with the privilege of not having a vote <laughs> in the U.S. and therefore not having to make that, that decision right. uh, in two weeks' time. Well, in, many I, year, in, in, in a decade or two, uh, I hate to say it, but in my pessimism will argue that uh, we might not have a, a, a choice either. Well, I, and if you, that goes back to my earlier comment about is, is the Republican Party ultimately for conservative values or for conservative economics? And I'm not sure you can necessarily hold those two together mm. long term. I would, as I say in the book, I raise the issue of check people's rhetoric against their actions it does seem to me that there's a lot more talk about pro-life issues at election time than there is in the intervening period. And it's funny how many people suddenly seem to be pro-life at election time. It becomes a convenient... Um, I, think I, I, I think I'm... The way I'm reading Peter, I think I would agree with him that we don't want to get into the business as a church of disciplining people for membership of a political party or, or, of, a, or of a vote. That's somewhere where the church doesn't want to go. Um, so that's and, – and again, uh, another point I make in the book is, for me, abortion should be the classic issue that the left should be united against mm. because the left prides itself on speaking up for the, the oppressed and speaking up for the voiceless. How voiceless can you get? Uh, I think Nat Hentoff absolutely skewers his left-wing colleagues on this issue in his pro-life writings. Before I get to Dr. Lilbach's uh, reaction on this next question, I'd like to hear your, your take <laughs> on this. You mentioned the Tea Party earlier. It's initially started as a, as a libertarian organization and has since, in my opinion, been co-opted by people that don't necessarily hold to the original principles upon which it was created, people with conservative morality and conservative values, particularly on abortion, other social issues, homosexuality and things. Uh, does that not seem to be at odds, ultimately, with the libertarian ideology that would say we should allow people to uh, go about their sexual orientation or their sexual lifestyle any way they want? We should allow people to have the liberty to do what they want with their own bodies, whether that be a, a woman with an unborn child. Do you find a, a built-in tension to the current manifestation of the Tea Party? I think so. I mean, as again, that, that really reflects the sentiments of the answer I gave mm -hmm. a few moments ago. My take on the Tea Party is it's essentially united, a group of people united by what they're against. The Obama administration, health care reform, etc. like Jake Russell Machen and Karl Barth. Yes, as, as, I, as I make the point in my introduction to Christianity and liberalism. <laughs> Excellent <laughs> segue. It's one of my stock answers like. to any question you care to ask me. Very nice. Uh, I think that uh, it would be interesting to see what happens to Tea Party candidates if and when they get elected into Congress because presumably they're going to have to work constructively with the mainstream Republican Party and inevitably working in Congress is always much more of a compromise than anybody stumping would care to tell you. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that we will, we will see a further transformation of the movement after November the 2nd. Hmm. Um, but you're right to highlight, I would guess that the Constitution Amendment on privacy is very dear to American libertarians. And as I understand it, that is the amendment under which uh, abortion was, uh, was brought in. Was that, was, was that not the case? On privacy? On a privacy issue. Invasion of privacy. That, that was at least one of the issues that yeah. were developed as a right to privacy, and then from that emerges from that, mm -hmm. this further right. It's not the government's business to tell us what I do with my own personal life. So there's, there's a series of implications that keep building. Absolutely. I think a lot of Christians would be comfortable in uh, the kind of language that says that Christianity and its moral system may have 
um, even on like a pragmatic level, uh, a positive impact in the political sphere. That, that's one kind of argument. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're at a theological institution. Um, it, it seems to me that when, when Christians get queasy is when they hear arguments that seem to set out a biblical exegetical precedent for either a political party or a political system, or even an individual nation like America or, or, or wherever. Um, how do you guys respond to um, relating Scripture proper to the political conversations that, that we're having right now even? I would, I would say that the way I read Paul in the New Testament uh, and the way I see Christianity developing in the, in the century after the death of the apostles is the emphasis in the civic realm is that Christians should be good citizens and good stewards. Now, what a good citizen and a good steward looks like can change over time. Uh, obviously, in the second century, it did not involve the universal franchise and, and the exercising the right to vote and caucusing and party politics. I would say today, uh, the imperative, if you like, for Christians is to be good citizens, to be civically engaged in the political process. That doesn't just mean voting. I think that means being well-informed about the issues. I think it involves a certain civility in discourse. One of the great tragedies of, of modern politics, I think, is that parties tend to insist upon only talking to themselves or talking past each other. Uh, there is a civility that I think Christians can bring to the, the public political realm. And that's something we often forget when we talk about Christian politics. We're often thinking policy. I also think it can mean style as well, respect, uh, politeness, refusal to break the ninth commandment. Um, as you know, I called last week publicly for all OPC and PCA office bearers who call Obama a Marxist to be tried <laughs> under breach of ordination vow on the ninth commandment. <laughs> But the, the, the post was an over-the-top spoof on one level. But I was trying to make a serious point that Christians need to model appropriate engagement in the, in the political sphere. And not wanting to spare Peter's blushes, I would say that for all of Peter's reputation as a radical conservative, he's always struck me as a, a very civil, polite, and mannerly engager in the political sphere, even with those... Uh, with whom he disagrees. I mean, you've mm. debated Kennedy's on C-SPAN, I think, Peter, and, and lived to tell the tale. So there's a, there's a style aspect to it as well as a policy aspect. Speaking of, uh, yeah, that, on that exact point, uh, I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on the nature of protest. You mentioned Paul and his comments on uh, Christians' relation to the government. I think of Romans 13 in particular. How do we go about, as Christians, protesting when we disagree with the government, how do we do that appropriately with style and with grace? Well, you know, it's interesting when you think about the word <laughs> Protestant, uh, protestare. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually means uh, testifying toward something. Mm -hmm. And that one of the things that I think when we protest is that it shouldn't be so much, I think you're wrong, it's this is right. Do we understand how important this issue is for us? And so I think as a Protestant, we should not be always looking at the negative side, but actually where we're trying to go and why we're trying to go and why it's superior. So there is speaking the truth in love, that classic language, which means we're uplifting the essential good that we want to be heard instead of the thing that we think is harmful. We certainly have to have a negative side, but we need to show the alternative. How, I always how, say to Peter that he hasn't, he's never seen a railing that he hasn't wanted to chain himself to at some point. <laughs> yeah, he said that before. I will, some, sometimes you have to be willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice, which is not martyrdom, but it's to chain yourself to an immovable object in protest. <laughs> I, and I've, you've done such a thing in uh, hiring Dr. Truman. <laughs> would, uh, one, uh, I suspect one difference between us, Peter, might be that in terms of political protest... I would be very comfortable for church members to protest as citizens. Would I be right in thinking that you would be more comfortable, you'd certainly be comfortable with that, but would also be comfortable with a minister protesting as a minister, not simply as a, as a citizen? Yes. I think uh, we're, we put our finger on that classic issue, the spirituality yeah. of the church, uh, and then the more active uh, let's say, cultural engagement role of the ministry and the church. And it's a fine line. Yeah. When, when can you, when can you not? 
And I have advocated that it is proper for a church leader, especially when he's engaged his elders and said, I feel my conscience requires me to do this, not just as a private citizen, but in my office as a bearer of the gospel. I want people to know that as a preacher of Christ, I'm laying my career, my line, and my reputation on the line for this matter, and that I want my church to stand with me. And I think no one should do that, in my opinion. I'm a Presbyterian. You need to go through the process of telling your elders why you're doing it and asking them. But there was, a, there was one case, and it's actually at the core of this issue, the wall of misconception, where the Ten Commandments were going to be stripped from the uh, courthouse in uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I had my elders together, and I said, you know, I'm going to be protesting this matter. I feel I need to do it as a clergyman. My view of philonomy that we spoke mm-hmm. about, I felt I needed to stand in this public square. And I said, if they're going to take it down, I might find this an occasion where I will choose to be a breaker of the law for Christ's law's sake, and I hope that you will visit me if I go to jail. Mm-hmm. I said, I didn't have a chain and a lock to lock myself to the courthouse pillar or door, but I thought I might literally stand in front of it and say, for Christ's sake, I'm not letting you take the Ten Commandments down. They were put here by those that believe that this is where all of our rights come from, and you're stripping us of the greatest freedom of all, mm-hmm. which is law that's grounded in our Creator and His great gift. And so I was doing that as a clergyman, and I actually told my elders, and they didn't tell me I couldn't. But I was really glad when the decision was they were simply going to put a uh, piece of barrier over it so you couldn't see the words while the protest went forward. I said, you didn't tear it off the wall. You're just, well, then there's, I felt like they were not defacing the rights of God's law. It was going to be debated. So I didn't have to do that. Mm. I was prepared to. That's where I think that the, the main difference between the two of us would be and that I would be more comfortable with Christians protesting as private citizens, not mm-hmm. as members of the church. Not so exactly. to use your categories from earlier, that would make me, I guess, more of a two kingdoms guy. There's uh, there's such a range of, yeah. of opinion or view within the 2K yeah. label, but yeah, I would agree. I would put you somewhere in there. Um, shifting gears just a little bit, uh, you have a healthy section in Republicrat on the media, uh, probably my favorite section. And that's uh, the section that's been bashed most in some of the recent reviews, oh, actually. Yeah. It's typical media. Apparently, no, typical Christ- media. no Christians read the listen liberal to Fox media. News. <laughs> liberal media. Yeah. Liberals like CNN, and NPR. Anyway, uh, did you just explain a little bit about your dissatisfaction with uh, the media and its uh, its agenda? Yeah. Well, the. the the, the particular channel I, I pick on, of course, is Fox News. And um, I also have a little bash at Glenn Beck and Pete's been on Glenn, Glenn's show a couple of times. I'm trying to figure out how to get Carl to go on with me next I time. I haven't learned how to cry on demand yet. I'm, I'm getting what's, what's the title of that chapter again? Uh, not so fantastic, Mr. Mr. Fox. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think, the, the, again, the burden of that chapter is, is th- threefold. Um, one... Don't get all your news from one media outlet. <laughs> Be aware that there's, there's spin going on there, and it's good to get a range of media. Two, I actually think that, that television, and even radio to a certain extent, is not a great medium for grappling with, with sophisticated ideas. Mm-hmm. I think the print medium is, is much better. Present show accepted, of course. <laughs> um, you're a, very, you're I, a post-manian I, here. I'm actually hardening my opinion on that, having been on one or two chat shows recently to talk about Republicrat where <laughs> I'm not sure that my views are entirely popular. <laughs> and um, the third, I can't remember, what was the third point I was going to make? Oh, the third point is to think critically about what you're watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sometimes, not wanting to sound too much like Marshall McLuhan, but sometimes the medium is the message. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to to reflect upon what you're watching, not simply to absorb what you're watching. Would some of now, your methodology there be reflected in your book that's coming out next month, Histories and Fallacies? Do you find that your training as a church historian helps you to deconstruct the news? I think that one of the things that doing history does for you is it, it gives you a certain handle on cultural criticism. I mean, One of the interesting things that has struck me about responses to the book is a number of people have fired back and said, well, Truman doesn't refer to sophisticated conservative thinkers. He doesn't mention Hayek. He doesn't mention Novak, people like this. 
Uh, well, my response to that is, I read Hayek. I read Hayek in 1984 when I was at school. It was a sort of standard book during the Thatcherite era. The reason I don't mention those books is they're not the books that are shaping the way the typical conservative person in this country right. thinks and votes. That's taking place at a much more, for want a better word, atavistic level, if mm-hmm. you like. And I'm trying to address in this book the, the influences that I think have most impact on most people. I don't think people are going to vote for the Tea Party because they've read The Road to Serfdom by Friedrich Hayek. I think people will vote for the Tea Party because they've heard that Obamacare equals socialism, something like that. They don't like the sound bites they're hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why the book is, is pitched at, at the kind of non-philosophical level. Oh, that's helpful. Um, uh, on a similar note, Dr. Lilback, you as well have historical training and have done much work in uh, church history. Um, I wanted to ask a broader sweeping question as we close our discussion today, because we're running a little short on time. Uh, we mentioned earlier the labels left and right and how those are always in flux. Um, do you find, as a church historian, uh, and even as a church historian who has been in the middle of theological controversies yourself, uh, do you find the vacillation between liberal and conservative or between left and right in politics replicated in church history? I think the issue of those that want to be freer from a tradition or freer from biblical authority and those who want to preserve tradition or preserve biblical authority, those issues are inherent in the human experience. Mm. There are people who want to be more on their own and people who say, we can't give this up, there's a great treasure. That is duplicated again and again. And I think uh, as a result of that, we always have to have the willingness to step back and say sometimes we need to let go of the tradition. Roman Catholicism was all about tradition. We needed to get rid of the tradition to get back to the scriptures. Hmm. Now you turn it around the other way and you say our tradition uh, is uh, important, but so are the scriptures. And so when you look at theological controversy, are we really committing ourselves to maintain a high view of the scriptures? Are we wanting to get away from this ironclad, old-fashioned, reformed tradition so now tradition is defined with the same thing as the Bible, and it's, that's confusing now. So liberal and conservative mean different things at different times. And so as a dictum that I would give to people is that uh, you cannot identify yourself with any one movement and say that solves the problem forever, any more than you can say you're driving down the road and say, well, I've corrected from moving to the left lane. I never have to steer my steering wheel again. <laughs> you you got constantly have to readjust based upon... Like three lefts all the yep, time. All right, equals so, a right. So left and right, you've got to move both directions <laughs> yeah. to stay within your lane. And so what is the truth of God? That's a real challenge. But once we become convinced of that, we can go out of bounds to the right or we can go out of bounds to the left. Mm-hmm. And a wise fully biblical uh, scholar, trained by a knowledge, not of the scriptures alone, but also the great riches of church history, is going to recognize sometimes you've got to go a little left to stay faithful. Other times you've got to go right to stay faithful. And that's part of the wisdom of saying, I just don't latch myself to a political movement, because no political movement, no tradition can identify itself exhaustively with the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. That's the call of faithfulness in every generation, to restate the obvious and yet maintain the truth that has been given to us from our forebears. That's, that's the living reality, and that's why church history never goes out of date and why doing theology is always a responsibility of every generation. Dr. Truman, you've made some comments uh, in years past about the general trajectory of seminaries and how there seems to be a similar pattern that many seminaries, at least in the United States, have followed. And uh, when they come upon that 50- or 75-year period, they need to make some tough decisions. Do you find that that vacillation between left and right inevitably regresses towards the left? Or is or do you find other cases uh, in which there is a... Are you talking in terms of politics now or in terms of the seminary? Either. either. I guess Uh, I was talking more theology, but I'd be curious to hear your position on either. I think on the seminary issue, um, no. Recent history has demonstrated that seminaries can start to turn around. Uh, The Lutheran Seminary Concordia did it in the 70s. Southern Baptist Seminary in Kentucky did it in the 90s. 
and I think Westminster's done it in the last few years. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time, and it's a very painful process, uh, and it involves it involves not caring what certain people think, which is a very hard thing, particularly when they're often their friends or people that you're close with or people that you respect. But it can be done. I'm not a historical determinist, um, <laughs> despite the rumors. I'm not a historical <laughs> determinist. And uh, I, I do believe that there's significant human responsibility mm-hmm. in these issues. And that it would extend to the political sphere then, do you think? Um, it's more difficult to say. I think that I think America is a great example of this. The American system is so full of checks and balances, I think it will always tend towards the center. One of the interesting things about Obama is, for all of the way he's portrayed as a very left-wing president, he's not as left-wing as he said he was going to be. And I think, as I was reading an article this week, looking back at the rhetoric used about Clinton between 94 and 96, about he was the most left-wing Democrat ever, now we're hearing words about him. Well, he was really a pretty conservative Democrat in many ways. I think that's the result of the American system that, that prevents radicals on either side running off with the ball. Mm-hmm. And I think probably in two weeks' time we'll see a, a corrective uh, in Congress I think that I will th- bring things further back to the center. Certainly. But I guess the essence of my question, I suppose, I do agree with you that I think I would, things tend back towards the center. But do you think that center is moving in one way or the other over time? I think on social issues, quite definitely. Okay. Uh, economics is more, more difficult, but I think on, on social issues, it's very clear to me that it, it was interesting that you said to me, you know, abortion is, is the big political issue. I'm not sure that it is outside of Christian circles. I'm not sure that it is. Well, I agree. Yeah, I'm speaking. I'm speaking perhaps yeah. for our audience here. But, and I think even even more difficult will be gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my kids' generation, it's not even an issue. Is my impression. My kids have certain opinions because they've been catechized. And I've taught them as children. We taught them on the one hand to respect everybody, no matter what their orientation may be. On the other hand, we try to teach them that that homosexuality uh, is wrong. But my kids will be exceptional in the next generation. Mm. I think that all the all the, the the dynamics of the culture have moved towards the normalization of homosexuality. So I think like when I was growing up, I still remember staying at a hotel with my parents when I was a kid. And there was whispering in the dining room because there was an unmarried couple staying together in the same room in the hotel. That was just 30 years ago. Mm. That's normal now. And I think the same thing will happen on sexual mores relative to, to homosexuality. Mm-hmm. So on, on, on cultural values of that kind, I think the drift is, if you want to say it's a leftward drift, then the drift is, is leftward. I think it's probably more in, one might say, a libertarian direction because I think right-wing libertarians have no more interest in, in policing the bedroom, if you like, than, than the left do. And perhaps, I mean, if we look at the the long development of politics in different areas, uh, tomorrow's left might have been, you know, a couple of decades ago's right position. <laughs> and things change and recast themselves, and people espouse positions for different reasons. I would say that the Democrat Democratic Party today are not really left on a lot of, economic issues Mm. compared to the British Labour Party or the French Socialist Party. They're really quite conservative compared to the European model on economic issues. Where they're left, if you want to use the term left, Mm -hmm. is on moral and cultural issues like abortion and and gay marriage. And that, as I say in the book, I think that's a tragedy. It involves an abandoning of the the very people they're meant to be speaking up for, the poor working class, not the middle class homosexuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's difficult, too, uh, when you have to make a choice in the poll booth uh, for one or the other. And it's you, you can't vote a la carte and say, I want this yeah. guy when, he, when the vote is a social issue, uh, when the vote's an economic issue, yeah. I want this guy. Uh, maybe some nation will develop a plan like that someday. <laughs> yeah. but, yeah. And, it's, and it's why a lot of the American working class, I think, vote Republican now. Yeah. Because mm. their social values are reflected by the Republican Party. Yeah. They've been abandoned 
by the party that should have spoken up for them. I don't know if you agree with that, Peter. Would that be? I think you're, you're on to something. Um, I wanted to give both of you a chance to have some some final thoughts. You've both mm -hmm. written books that are um, have caused some controversy just because they're political probably. But um, if you had just a, a closing thought on people who might have had one conception of your book and you want to clear up um, some of those, um, <laughs> no pun intended, misconceptions that are out there, maybe start with you on Sacred Fire and Wall of Misconceptions, some things you might want to address. Well, probably the most important thing for me on Sacred Fire is that people think that I hold to the Christian America theory. And I want to make clear, I'm not wise enough to speak of an entire nation in the hearts of every individual. I've never attempted to say every American was a Christian and then we lost that. What I wanted to do is to focus at one person and put him in his historical milieu and say, you know what, there's a whole lot more Christian faith here than anyone ever thought. So that's the first thing. The second thing on Wall of Misconception, I think what I'm trying to get at is that none of us can escape the fact that our culture ultimately reflects the deep core heart values of a community. And while most Americans may no longer even want to identify themselves with the Christian faith, religious liberty came out of Christianity, and that's not an accident. It's because of this high view of human dignity and that there needs to be a check and balance on coercive power to harm people who are trying to be faithful to their own understanding of the world. Those uh, ideas of culture, I think, are critical. And so I've wanted to argue not that America is a Christian country or that it ever was, even though it might have said so along the way at different times in court documents and otherwise, but rather there is a culture that has been deeply influenced by Judeo-Christian values. I think that's historically accurate, and to deny that is to really misunderstand our history and heritage. Mm -hmm. So that's my concern, is that I, when people lump me in, well, you're in the Christian America movement, I say, well, you need to let me define what that means. My purpose is to say in one particular individual and then to talk about culture that has this deep Christian aspect to its culture— believer, unbeliever, otherwise. Even atheists celebrate religious liberty. And in so doing, they're basically saying, William Penn, as a Christian minister, you actually were right to apply Jesus' golden rule to the public square. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what they're really doing when they celebrate religious liberty. They're not Christians, but they're honoring a Christian principle applied to culture. So my clarification is, I'd like people to recognize what I am trying to do and what I'm not trying to do. Dr. Truman. Uh, well... <laughs> Certainly, on one one person has said that it, it seems to that I have a, a personal grudge against Rupert Murdoch, and I'd like to assure readers that I didn't write the book to express a personal grudge against Rupert Murdoch and Fox News. Uh, I think, on the whole, what I'm trying to do is is argue for a separation between partisan policies and the gospel. That Christians should not confuse the two, and I would like to see a world where. Christians could stand on opposite sides of the picket line and shout at each other Monday to Saturday and then join together in, in harmony around the Lord's table on a Sunday. So it, it's a plea to, to keep politics in perspective and to realize that the great task of the church is primarily the gospel and it's that on which Christians should be primarily focused. Mm. Uh, come November 2nd for Americans uh, that are registered voters, how would you hope it would be more of an agonizing decision, just for those reasons? I would hope that as people go into the voting booth and, and look at the, the names in front of them, they'll realize that they have to compromise something they dearly believe in, whichever box they tick. Mm -hmm. That no side has a monopoly of the truth. But their civic duty, uh, won for them by generations of people who struggled for the franchise, requires them to vote one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Any final words uh, for the voters on November 2nd, things you might want to say, words of encouragement? Or well, I always like to say that one of our great gifts from Jesus is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And wherever light goes, it dispels darkness. Wherever salt goes, it prevents decay. Let us never think for a moment that politics is salt and light in Jesus' terms, but it has direct implications for it. When a Christian votes a Christian worldview and lives that Christian worldview, he may not change the world, but he does put brakes on a car that's going off a cliff. He's slowing it down and giving a chance 
for a culture to find that center again. Where, how can we survive? So every election is made by voters. Votes are won by majority votes, and sometimes they're won by a single vote. And vote your conscience when you go into the ballot box. Pray about it. Do Go through the agonizing process that Dr. Truman has described, but don't stay home and be uninvolved. Mm. Say, I'll do my best to advance Christ's light in this place as I understand it. And then I think we've done our duty. Well, I want to thank both of you. Uh, we are out of time, and thank you so much for joining us uh, for this very stimulating discussion. I know it's difficult with both of your schedules, but thanks for taking time out of your day to okay. come over. I just want everyone to know I won't punch Dr. Truman <laughs> until the camera goes dead. Okay. He's a jiu-jitsu practitioner. Okay. No punches. I'd have to exert my Second Amendment rights, I think, and finish Peter off straight away. So. You need to protect the family. That's why we carry guns in our pockets. <laughs> well, uh, please, uh, as you uh, consider these topics, uh, why don't you also considering uh, consider picking up one of these books or all of them, uh, Republicrat from Dr. Carl Truman, which is available at WTSBooks.com. Uh, you can also find uh, George Washington's Sacred Fire and Wall of Misconception there from Dr. Peter Lilback. Uh, three great books that you should check out and sharpen your thinking with. Uh, great perspectives on the subject of uh, Christianity and politics. Of course, you can visit Westminster online at wts.edu and uh, various social media outlets such as youtube.com slash Westminster Online and facebook.com slash Westminster Online. There's a lot of information there. And we, of course, are on the web at reformedforum.org. There you will find information about all of our programs as well as how to subscribe to our various feeds. And a Donate Now button. If you're able to support us, we would encourage you to do so and help us to continue producing and distributing these programs free of charge. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.